Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. This evening's scripture is coming from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. You may be seated. From time to time, what I enjoy doing and am determined to do is preach sermons about the distinctiveness of the Lord's church. And tonight, I want to preach such a sermon. I, I, uh, I have one major point to make with this sermon. Now, I've got five points I want to make briefly, make observation about, but it really is about one major point, and I want to make it at the end of this sermon. Now, if you get up and leave before the end of the sermon, I'm going to call you by name as you go out because I have a feeling that you could get the wrong impression if you, um, if you leave before the end. You must hear the end. Now, another thing, this is the, the second uh, preparatory statement I want to make is that I'm going to use the term Church of Christ in a way that I don't really prefer to use it. I make a point to use the term Church of Christ to apply only, and I, I sometimes say this when you hear me say the Church of Christ, I'm talking about specifically about the church that Jesus was talking about when he said, on this rock I'll build my church. That's what I'm talking about when I reference the Church of Christ. Tonight for this lesson, what I want to do is to use it in the way that most people use it. To talk about there's this church and there's this church and there's the church of Christ and there's this church and this church. So just for this sermon, I want to use it that way. Now five things that are, that are distinctive about the church of Christ. Five things which we believe. With each one, I want to make the observation that we're not the only ones, not the only religion that holds to that truth. It's a biblical truth, and I want to demonstrate that, but we're not the only ones who believe that. Here's number one. We believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I mean the verbally inspired Word of God. We're not the only ones who believe that. Now, it's a true statement, though. It's a true principle. Here's Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, that is to say that the people, those prophets who received those communique from God, they, they, uh, they spoke those things, but it didn't come from their own heart. It wasn't like, like God gave them a feeling and they, it, God gave them the words. It wasn't by any private interpretation. Prophecy came not by the word of, or the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians 2 and verse 13, and I really love this. We, we thank God without ceasing because 
when, when we gave you the word of God, you didn't take it as the word of men. You took it as, as it really is. You took it as the word of God. And, of course, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know what the, the word inspired means? It means God breathed. Right now, I'm preaching and I'm pushing air from my lungs past my larynx. My vocal cords are vibrating and I'm forming the words with my tongue and I'm spitting out the words. This is, this is Glenn breathed. The Bible is called inspired. It is God breathed. But now, make this observation with me. The church of Christ is not the only church in town that believes the Bible is the inspired word of God. That's a true statement that it really is. But we're not the only ones who believe this. Here's the second thing. We're, We're not the only church that believes in the difference between the Old and New Testaments or recognize the difference between the two Testaments. Now, the Bible talks about this a good bit. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that we don't live under the law of Moses. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, remember, says that that old law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. But when this faith in Christ has come, then we're not under a schoolmaster anymore. So you have the Old Testament law that people were under, but we're not under that law anymore. It's terribly important to appreciate this fact. If you don't know, if you don't know this, you can become very, very confused. Our law is the law of Christ. The Hebrews chapter 7, or chapter 8 rather, beginning in verse 7, says this. For if that, new, that, if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days come, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Remember Moses went on Mount Sinai? Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of them his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins, their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He's made the first obsolete. Now, what is obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We have the New Testament. We are under the New Testament law, not under the Old Testament law. Romans 15.4 says what was written aforetime, Old Testament law, was written for our learning. And we learn, I preach from the Old Testament a good bit, but that doesn't mean that we're under that law. We're not. We're under the New Testament law. Colossians 2.14 says he took it out of the way and nailed it to his cross. Hold on a minute, though. Mm, Here's the observation. What I just said is true, and it's essential to understanding Christianity, essential to understanding the Word of God. We have a Bible that contains two laws. One has been nailed to the cross, the Old Testament law. We're not under that law. The other is the New Covenant, the New Testament law. But... We're not the only church in town that believes that. We're not the only ones. I mean, that's, that's indicated by the fact that so many churches meet on Sunday and not on Saturday. They, they recognize that. How many churches do you know that practice animal sacrifices as the Old Testament would enjoin, enjoin on people? How many churches do you know that do that? Well, I, I don't know of one personally. That indicates some recognition of the difference between the laws.
Here's number three. We, we have music in the church of Christ, but it is, it is exclusively a cappella music. We don't have any kind of instruments of music except the human voice. Now, this may be interesting to you. This won't take but just a minute, but we ought to do this. There are nine passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Nine passages which discuss church music. How many of them? There are nine. Now, walk down with me. I've I've, uh, created slides to show each one of these. Let's just walk down and read them together. Now, would you just kind of scroll through these and we'll read them. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Now, that's, that's the upper room, the Last Supper. Jesus is about to head to the trials and the crucifixion. And it said both in Mark, uh, Matthew's account and Mark's account in Mark chapter 14, when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. I, I would have loved to have heard that. Acts 16, 25, you'll remember this because it has to do with, as the children just mentioned, the Philippian jailer. The night that he was baptized, he had Paul and Silas in prison. Their feet were fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. All right, next slide. Romans fifteen nine, And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, For this reason I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. What's the conclusion then? I'll pray with the Spirit. I'll pray with the understanding. This is a context of miraculous gifts. And he says, I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the understanding. All right, next. Ephesians 5, 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Colossian, the Colossian letter we talked about this morning is very similar. And he said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Next. In the midst of the church or assembly, Hebrews 2.12, I will sing praise to you. And then James 5.13, any among you suffering, let him pray. Any cheerful, let him, let him sing psalms. All right. Now, what you see in those nine passages is, I think, abundantly clear. You, you just have, you have music in the church, but it's always congregational a cappella singing. It's just singing. If we do what these passages say, that's what we're going to do in our worship. And that is, I know that's very distinctive. And when I, when I say we're not the only ones in town who practice that, we're pretty close. But we're not the only ones in town. Primitive Baptists, Greek Orthodox, some Reformed Presbyterians are the same way. Now, the logic is very simple. Second John 9, whoever transgresses and doesn't abide in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. We, 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 our worship, John 4 and 24, it's got to be in spirit and in truth. So we're bound by the Scriptures. The Scriptures say, here's what you do, and so that's what we do. The logic is very simple. God only accepts things in worship that are authorized. Instrumental music in worship is not authorized. Therefore, we shouldn't do it, and God doesn't accept it. But we're not the only ones in town. We're not the only church that understands that principle from Scripture. Number four, we eat the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Every Lord's Day, every Sunday, when you come to worship here, we're going to serve the Lord's Supper. Every single one. Now, the reason for that is because, I mean, you go to Matthew chapter 26 and you read about Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. 
When you go to 1 Corinthians 11, you have the Apostle Paul rehearsing that, talking about what he received about this subject, and he's encouraging the people in Corinth, the church there, to get this right. Here's what the Lord's Supper is like. Here's what I want you to do to get it right, because they were, they were messing it up. When you get to Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, the Bible says this about the early church. And upon the first day of the week, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and he continued his lesson speech till midnight. I want you to observe the way that phrase is phrased. It isn't that, uh, that once in a while they ate the Lord's Supper. It's not presented as something they did occasionally. It's presented as something they did on the first day of the week. Why are y'all gathering on the first day of the week? And it says, when they came together for this purpose. That is to say, on the first day of the week, they ate the, Lord, the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. Now, it's also interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and 2 that I referenced this morning that they got together every first day of the week. That's when they gave of their money. They contributed on the first day of the week. And churches don't have any trouble with that. They've got that figured out every first day of the week because it says on Sunday, that's when first day of the week, that's when you do it. But some churches are confused about the eating of the Lord's Supper. We eat the Lord's Supper every time the first day of the week rolls around because that's what we're authorized to do. And some say, yeah, but I just don't think we should do that. We do it in our church quarterly. We do it in our church monthly or annually because we believe that that if you ate the Lord's Supper every first day of the week, that it would lose its meaning. It would become trite. We don't, first place, it doesn't really matter what you think, what we think about it. What's the Bible say? That's the ultimate question. And what it says is the early church ate the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, so that's what we do. But I would dispute the fact or the idea that it becomes trite or meaningless. You know what I'm going to do after this service is over? I'm going to go home with my wife. I've been doing that for 43 years. And I still haven't gotten tired of it. You know, I rather look forward to it. I've been around here a long time, but I, I rather like it. Same thing with our worship. Couldn't you make the argument about prayer? Don't, why don't, we just shouldn't pray this Sunday. Let's just... Let's just hold off on prayer in view of the fact that we've been doing a lot of that lately. Maybe we shouldn't do it. You see the point, of course. You see, you see the point. And so it is the Lord's Supper. No, 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 no. It doesn't get old or tried. It doesn't get worn out. The fact of the matter is the Bible says on the first day of the week, that's what Christians did. But we're not the only ones who do that. We're not the only ones who believe that. Some Anglicans do. Many Presbyterians do. Some Baptists even now do eat the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. We're not the only ones. Now, here's number five. I said there were going to be five. Here's the fifth one. We teach and practice baptism the way that we do. Now, this is not so complicated, but it's terribly important. We don't baptize babies. Never will do that because they're not candidates for baptism. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And listen closely, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. A a baby cannot meet that qualification. A baby can't believe, cannot understand enough to believe. but But belief is a prerequisite to being baptized. So we don't baptize babies. When we baptize someone, it's always by immersion, right? Always. 
always. Why is that? Well, in Acts chapter 8, you have a verbal portrait, picture painted, of the Ethiopian eunuch being baptized. The Bible says that Philip, who was baptizing him, went with him. They both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then it says they both came up out of the water. I don't know how the Holy Spirit would do a better job of explaining that baptism means going down into the water. Why in the world would Philip need to go down into the water to baptize him if sprinkling was good enough? The Greek word for baptism, as you probably know, means immersion. It means to immerse. The Greek word itself, baptism, means to immerse. And so you have the same thing when you go to Acts chapter 6 and verse 3. Not that so many of us has been baptized into Jesus Christ, baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. If you've been planted together in the likeness of his death, you'll also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we we only practice immersion because that's just what the Bible says. You just can't get around it. it. just That's just what it says. And we practice baptism. Are you ready for this? For the forgiveness of sins. The Bible is just so plainly clear about this, despite the fact that so many religions will not practice it. Is it true? How about, well, let's just, just see. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Acts 2 and verse 38. or Acts 22 and verse 16. And now, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You reckon that it's for the remission of sins? Well, that's very plain talk. But we're not the only ones in town who, who baptize people Immerse believing people for the forgiveness of sins. We're not the only ones who do that. Mormons do it. Catholics practice sprinkling, but they do believe that baptism is essential to be saved. Some Baptists now, I'm told, are baptizing for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins. And you could, you could go to other things. The next slide, I'll put some of these things. I mean, for example, of the name that we're called, uh, there are there are churches. We we insist that we should go back to the scriptures about what we're called. In Romans sixteen sixteen says the churches of Christ salute you, and we we refer to ourselves as the Church of Christ. But it doesn't have to be called that. You know, you, you could call it something else that's biblical. First Timothy three and verse fifteen. Uh, it's called the the house of God, the church of the living God. That would be scriptural. You could just call it the church. You know, in First Corinthians one and verse two, the church of God, which is at Corinth. You could just call it the church or the church of God or the church of Christ. Any of these things would be biblical, the body of Christ. You could call it that, the body. Any of these would be biblical descriptions or designations for the church. But there are churches that that refer to themselves by biblical designations. We're not the only ones who teach holy living, moral living, or practice benevolence or practice evangelism. We practice these things, but we are not the only church that practices these things. Is there any sense, I'm getting to the end now, is there any sense in which we are different? Not the only ones who believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God. We're not the only ones who recognize the difference between the Old and New Testaments. We're not the only ones who, who sing solely a cappella. And no mechanical instruments. We're not the only ones who do that. We're, we're not the only ones who eat the Lord's Supper weekly. 
We're not the only ones who teach the, the truth about baptism. We're not the only ones who believe these obvious, and I believe everybody in this room would agree that these are precepts taught in the Scripture. Is there any way that we're different then? And the answer is yes. And here's the difference, and here's the point of the sermon. While we're not the only one who, who does these, the church of Christ is the only one in which you can do all of these things at the same time. Over here in Congregation A, they practice baptism, and it's immersion, but it's not for the remission of sins. Over here in Congregation B, why they sing only a cappella. They only eat the Lord's Supper once every quarter. Congregation C over here, they, they believe that baptism is essential for salvation, but they baptize babies or sprinkle them because they, they don't believe in immersion. I'm saying that the church of Christ, all of these things, I think you would agree with me, all of these things are precepts that are taught in the New Testament. And you've got parts of these, parts of these that are believed by other groups, other religions out there. But I'm going to tell you this. Only in the church of Christ can you practice all of these things, these true biblical principles at the same time. And so what we're doing is pleading with people to be Christians only and restore New Testament Christianity. Read your Bible. Keep reading your Bible. Keep rejecting the creeds of men that binds you to any practice that's not authorized in the Scripture. We don't want to settle for part of the truth. We want to pursue and practice all of the truth. I'm so glad you came tonight. I'm so glad you're here. I know you got a week in front of you, and I hope it'll be a great week. And let's just determine, vow right now that God help us to the best of our abilities. We're going to live this week to the glory of God in everything that we do. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.